news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Today we're super excited to have a guest agent join us. Don Ron Song is an agent at Howard Moraine Literary Agency representing science fiction and fantasy for adults, young adults and middle grade readers as well as select non-fiction. They were formerly an editor at Orbit, a product manager for an ebook startup and have taught at institutions including Portland State University and New York University. So it's my pleasure to welcome Don Song. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. And before we dive into today's queries, which are all within the sphere, a conversation I just wanted to have with you first was a question we get a lot from listeners. They get super confused between the difference between science fiction fantasy, and then speculative fiction. So they're seeing agents listing speculative fiction as something that they want, and they're going, is that sci-fi? Is it fantasy? So could you first break it down for them? 
Absolutely. So speculative to me, as someone who comes from the genre, you know, really worked at a science fiction fantasy imprint, is a term we've seen more and more over like the last 10, 15 years while I've, you know, been in the industry. In a lot of ways, speculative is just fancy science fiction and fantasy. You know what I mean? It's a way of making it feel a little bit more upmarket, a little bit maybe more for mainstream audiences versus for straight genre fiction audiences, right? So it's a way to indicate where you see your book shelved in the bookstore. Are you going to be in the genre section? Are you going to be working with a genre publisher? A great example of this is, for example, the career of Jeff Vandermeer, who started out being published at Tor, which is, you know, the largest science fiction fantasy publisher in the United States, and then moved over to FSG, which is one of the most prominent literary publishers in the United States. And then suddenly he's no longer a science fiction writer. He's now a speculative writer, right? And there are differences in how the books work. I think there are differences in the tone, in the fiction. It can get a little hair splitty as to what's what's for what audience, what's for another. But really fundamentally, think about who your audience is and who are you writing for, right? Like central questions of publishing, like who do you think is going to be buying this book? Where in the bookstore do you see it? And that to me is really the line that it's going to break down on. Amazing. So in other words, things like Matt Haig's The Midnight Library and then Emma Straub's latest, which deals with time travel, etc., that would be classed as speculative fiction. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And speculative, you know, tends to be more grounded. It tends to start in sort of a, a more recognizable, relatable moment. And then speculative elements, whether that's science fictional, like time travel or technology or magical elements start to come in. So, you know, something like I always get the name mixed up. It's either Black Leopard, Red Wolf or Red Leopard, Black Wolf. One of the the Marlon James fantasy novel, that to me isn't speculative. That to me is fantasy, even though it's published by a very literary publisher from a very literary author. That to me is straight up epic fantasy. How it was pitched, what language is used. Again, this is where it starts to get a little hair splitty. But to me, speculative is almost always grounded in, in a very recognizable moment, maybe a historical one but something in our world, and then other elements start to come in in a way. So uh, another framing for this, if it's more commercial fiction rather than literary fiction, is maybe high concept. So a high concept thriller or, or, or a high concept story is often, you know, one element changed, whether that's a speculative element or not. Amazing. And then last question, because we also get people who are still using the term kind of magical realism, even though their work isn't grounded in like Latin American roots or whatever the case may be is. I think of a novel that I adored years ago called Itta and Otto and Russell and James. And it was a woman who goes on a heck of a long walk and she's joined by creatures like foxes and stuff who she has long conversations with. And you kind of aren't sure is she really speaking to these animals or is she tripping, right? And and some people would have termed that magical realism. And now we're saying, okay, you can't use that term for anything that has a slightly magical bent. So would they also term that as, as speculative fiction? I would say that's speculative fiction or maybe contemporary fantasy or surrealist fiction, right? Those are all sort of options there. I think magical realism is a very, very specific subgenre with specific tropes and styles and, you know, is largely coming from a Latinx perspective and history, right? So I would I would shy away from that unless you were really, really sure that that's what it is that you are doing. I think surrealist or speculative or contemporary fantasy are alternatives that you can use that will signal to publishers and to audiences what kind of fiction they're engaging with and what elements to expect in the book. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for that. Okay, so we've got four query letters to get through today. Let's kick us off with that first query letter. Sure thing. 
Okay. So, dear Bianca, Cece, and Carly, your Books with Hook segment is a godsend, and I can't thank you enough for all the things you've taught me about this extremely daunting thing called a query letter. Redacted is a 98,000-word adult fantasy novel that can be described as An Ember in the Ashes meets Dance of Thieves. This is a standalone novel with serious potential. In a world plagued by an eternal fog that harbors dark and dangerous creatures, 22-year-old Elia Cretus dreams of the day she can move her family away from the dangers that lurk outside their home inside the mountain. When her twin sister Shia is mistaken for Elia and arrested for a murder neither of them committed, Elia must find a way to save Shia from imprisonment and impending execution. With Elia and her family indentured to Zaban, a secret faction of people persecuted for their perceived dark magic, she and her two best friends volunteer to enlist in the New King's Origin Trials, a competition to find the most fearless subjects in his kingdom. The trials will take them to the capital, where Shia is held prisoner, and Elia is eager to leave. Before their departure, Elia's ex, Jaiden, assumed dead, reappears after a year in hiding and joins in their mission as spies for the Zaban and to rescue Shia. Elia expects her biggest hurdle will be saving her sister, working with Jaiden, all while trying to survive the trials. It's not until mutated monsters, priestesses with dark practices, and a sinister advisor to the king all become more dangerous than the trials themselves, proving Elia's sister's life isn't the only one at stake. It hurts to admit, but I earned my degree in English creative writing almost a decade ago from NMSU. As a Latina of blended ethnicities, I strive to creatively represent the home and diverse community I grew up in, whether in this world or one all my own. When I'm not writing, you can find me wrangling my three headstrong girls, along with Pablo, our huge Bernadoodle pup, reading and rewatching episodes of The Office, or anything in the fantasy realm with my husband. Amazing. Thank you. Okay, so now this is something that we get a lot when we get these genre pitches, is that they are so much longer than other query <laughs> letters because we have to factor in world building elements, right? There's a lot to cover in these, yeah. That, that's the problem. You can't just be like so-and-so and so-and-so have a you know love connection. It's got to be, but it's happening while all these aliens are doing X, Y, and Z. Okay, so what is your take on this one? So I think you're hitting on the, the thing right away, right? There's so much world building in this. And yes, you do need to get a lot of that across. But one of the things I'm looking for as someone who works in the space is, do you have economical ways of communicating to me what the world building is? Is it easily understood? Can you get that across quickly and in a way that's really integrated with character and plot, right? So finding ways to do that is going to be super important. And even in a query letter, that's opportunities to get that word count down a little bit, get your pitch a little bit punchier, a little bit clearer. And, you know, in genre fiction, what you need to be doing is communicating very, very quickly what kind of story we're in, what are these familiar elements, and then get me in the door. And then I can explore all the cool things that are in your world, right? I know there's a, it's a 100,000 word novel or whatever it is. There's no, yeah, 98,000 word novel. You know, there's going to be a ton of stuff in there that you're not going to cover in your in your query letter, and that's okay, right? So, do I need to know every single religion, every single faction, every single character? I'm not sure, right? So, I think that's sort of the the top level thing that I have here. You know, it's it's a very effective query letter in a lot of ways. The structure is spot on. You know, I think saying adult fantasy novel. It feels kind of YA-ish in part because like it's a younger girl, it's her like ex-boyfriend and they're going on this quest, right? A lot of fantasy is 
inherently sort of like Bildungsroman, like coming of age stories. So it's possible that she's old enough that this will feel like an adult novel. But right now I'm not seeing sort of the world buildings, the politics and the complexity that I would expect from an adult fantasy versus a YA fantasy. Plus you're using comps that sort of, again, ride that line between YA and adult. So something to think about in terms of how you're framing it, how you're pitching it, who the audience is for. If you want it to read adult, I would advise getting comps that really do pull in some of the bigger world building elements. If you don't have those elements, then maybe this is more of a YA pitch. So that's sort of like high level stuff. Getting into the more specifics, this is a nitpicky thing in a lot of ways, but you're using super long sentences, right? You can sort of hear it as I was trying to read it. I would get a little lost in the sentence and like be like, wait, where am I putting emphasis? What's what's happening in the sentence? You know, SFF, fantasy, epic fantasy, it's a very commercial genre, right? You want to be able to communicate a lot of information quickly. So having these big, long, wordy sentences can really be a barrier. What you want, especially in copy, is to be a little bit punchier, a little bit quicker. This may be a little bit rooted in my perspective. My my old colleagues at Orbit used to refer to me as the William Shatner of copywriting because my, <laughs> my prose was so punchy and so short. But I think you can move in that direction. You don't have to be William Shatner, but like, I think a little bit more brevity and a little bit more breaking things up, not having so many clauses attached to each other will help comprehension a lot. Because I think the thing I struggled with most was getting kind of lost in what's happening here. In part, all of this copy, pretty much the first two graphs, it really feels like that's prologue chapter one stuff, you know? It feels like we're only just getting to the journey. We're just getting to the meat of the story. And then the copy's over. And then you sort of have this long list of like monsters, priestesses, sinister advisors of the king. And I don't really know what all those things mean. I don't really know what the trial is. Those feel like the more important things to focus on. They're going to make your book stand out versus kind of the setup of like, I don't know what the Zaban is. Like that's, that's a big concept to introduce in sort of half a sentence secret faction of people well then how is she indentured to them what's their perceived dark magic why is it not just dark magic why is it perceived you know there's all these like little elements that you're asking big questions that don't feel like they're pulling me in they're instead making me step back and be like wait what's happening so think about that think about what you're communicating what's really important and what's going to be the shape of this story right so i would just like try and both be shorter and give me a little bit more at the same time. Always the challenge of writing a cover letter and always the challenge of writing copy here. Bio is very good. You can maybe scale back a little bit and just like lean on a more professional tone. You know, the it hurts to admit kind of like it's starting a little bit on a negative note, right? In, in a bio, I think it's a dress for the job you want kind of moment. And you're coming at it a little like ambivalent or on the back foot. You know, you have a degree in creative writing. That rules. I don't care when you got it. You've done the education. You've done the training. You're ready for this. And I want you to be selling me that energy rather than being like, well, I spent 10 years doing something else. I'm like, that that doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is that you're a writer and you are aware of that and embodying that in the work that you do. I love knowing your background and I love like seeing how that's going to influence the world building. Once you mention it, I can kind of feel it a little bit in the copy. I want to feel that more, right? If you're going to bring it up in a way that's saying that like you're representing the home that you come from and the community that you come from, then like make me feel that a little bit in in the copy. I mean, you don't have to be super overt about it, but if you're making the argument, this is connected. I want to see that. I want to feel that. I want to know this is coming from a person who's coming from a place. 
Amazing. That's all awesome. Yeah. And you know, we say it all the time, the real estate in terms of opening pages and the real estate in terms of a query letter, it's so expensive. So every word you use, never mind every sentence has really got to be jockeying for position and fighting to be there. The metaphor I always use is it's got to be a layer cake, right? Every single thing has to be doing double, triple, quadruple work to be carrying plot, character, world, all of the things. And if, it, if your sentence is doing one thing, then it's not doing enough. Yeah. See, this is why I'd rather write 10 novels than one damn query letter. Okay. <laughs> what was in those opening pages? So the opening page is a sort of longish description of some kind of religious ceremony. The main character is participating in it in some way, in a sort of formal way. She's holding a tray, I believe, of some kind of pastries that her her aunt has made or her grandmother's made of. The term is Nama. I'm not sure what that relationship is. And they're burning bodies of some sort. So it's some sort of ritualistic burning. Where I got a little confused was, is this a regular thing that they do? Or is this a special thing that they do? So it, it was it was a moment that was like, had some really beautiful imagery and some really interesting ideas in it. I think there's something interesting in starting in a religious ceremony. It, it is starting heavy, heavy with world building. But also we have a little bit of the position of this character as, you know, who feels like kind of a put upon teenager being forced to participate in this ceremony that she doesn't really care about, right? That said, this scene is also used as an opportunity to really give us a ton of world building, a ton of proper nouns. We're given sort of descriptions of all the gods that are in this scene, of the city, and then of a supernatural creature that's sort of involved in this. So I became very sort of fuzzy on what it was they were doing, what the purpose of the ceremony was. And ultimately, I know she doesn't believe in the religion, but I got confused as to how she feels about this burning, right? Is this a sad event? Is it a happy event? Is it truly just a thing that happens every Thursday? And she's like, I can't believe I have to go to this again. You know, I think a little bit more of that sense of the rhythm that religion takes in these people's lives would help me situate myself a lot in this. There's some reference that maybe this is like a caravan of people who died, but I couldn't quite connect the dots there. So, you know, I think really going back to what I was saying earlier about it being a layer cake, really make sure every sentence, especially in that first page, isn't just giving me an image. I need to be knowing character. I need to be knowing setting. I need to be knowing some kind of plot hook too, right? Like I'm assuming the introduction of sort of the supernatural creature in this scene, who's like, I guess, buried within the bodies or is in the fire as well. I think I need to know how that's going to connect. Is that a story promise? Is that a threat of a thing that's coming later? Is that like the monsters coming back or it's again, oh, it's Thursday, right? Like I think a little bit of that tone would really help me situate where you are in this world and what kind of story we're in. Right. And and emotionality and interiority goes a long way to helping with that. Absolutely. To helping the reader understand the emotional, you know, world of this character and how they are responding to their environment. And that also helps drive the plot forward. Because remember, you want characterization to drive plot forward in a way that feels organic and authentic. You don't want the character to feel like they're just this puppet in this greater world moving around. You know, you want to give them agency within this world and know how they feel about it, etc. Etc. So again, it's so tough because you have to do world building, characterization, interiority, emotionality, move the plot forward. All extremely, extremely hard. What I will say is that this is a little bit of a hack because there's an opportunity here to do those things as well, right? One way to think about doing fantasy fiction is what's the core metaphor for why you're telling the story? Why is this a fantasy story and just not 
a girl in a high school, right? Or a girl in a Catholic ceremony, which I think this, you know, mirrors in certain ways, right? You're making this fantasy for a reason. That is an opportunity to tie character and character conflict to world building, right? It's not just that you need to be doing this to get me hooked on the first pages. It's this is a way for you to communicate to me why are you writing this story and to to really make a statement in your first pages. I'm telling this story because of X, right? And then that to me is going to be a real hook for me, for other readers, for editors, whoever else is coming across this. So look for those opportunities to connect character, tension and conflict and uh, uh, world building all in one loop. And then that'll be sort of the engine that's going to drive your story forward. Amazing. Thank you. Okay, let's move to the second query letter. Absolutely. So... Dear Carly, CC, Bianca, and guest agent, listening to the, this is the acronym for the podcast name, which I'm not familiar enough to know how to pronounce it. I've heard the host pronounce it as like a, a statement before. <laughs> not your, uh, podcast over the past year has elevated my writing and understanding of the publishing industry in countless ways. I know neither Carly nor CC typically represent fantasy. That's why I'm here. But I'm hopeful that they or a guest agent can still provide feedback on my query. The magic and adventure elements of Freya Marska's A Marvelous Light meet the epistolary elements of Bridget Collins's The Betrayals in Whisper of Magic and Flame, a 100K word adult historical fantasy set against the opulence, simmering tension, and political intrigue of 1880 Imperia, Russia. Katya Belova's meticulously planned life of science and scholarship is crumbling. Between battling misogynistic faculty at the University of Vienna, dodging her dead uncle's creditors, and suppressing the strange episodes of confusion that turn her usually orderly thoughts to slush, she's maintaining a fragile and lonely existence. When her nascent magical abilities emerge in a nearly deadly outburst, Katya discovers a secret underworld of magic that flouts every principle of science she holds dear and upends what little order remains in her life. Now, Katya must deal with her unwanted abilities before they kill her. And that's not the only threat she must contend with. According to Vasil Ivanovich, the handsome yet infuriating magician who patches her skull back together after her magical mishap, there is an errant scrap of magic embedded in her brain. The work of disreputable Russian magician Mikhail Borokov, unless she tracks Borokov down and compels him to remove it, the magic will result in full-blown dementia, ending her academic aspirations forever. Seeing Borokov, she and Vassal set off into the Russian Empire, where profound inequality and repression have fostered terrorist attacks against the crown. Katya believes she can quickly deal with Borokov and return to her beloved books and beakers, putting both magic and her distracting attraction to Vassal behind her. But her overconfidence leads to a grave miscalculation. Borokov takes her captive and enlists her in an assassination and thievery plot against the Romanov Emperor, their quarry an ancient magical artifact with untold power. Plagued by guilt over her inadvertent role in Borokov's plans and the grave injury Vassal suffers and the subsequent struggle to free her, Katya is determined to stop Borokov before he uses the magical artifact to destroy St. Petersburg. For once, she must fully embrace the chaos of magic and her heart if she has any hope of saving the city and her future. My interest in Eastern European history, sparked by my heritage and namesake, Anna Karenina, deepened while studying political science and international studies at the University of Michigan. I believe this manuscript is timely given current events and plays into the public's perpetual fascination with the Romanov family. I've worked for eight years in the PR and communications industry, and I live north of Boston with my partner and two sassy huskies, Stella and Ivy. Thank you for your consideration and for everything you do for the writing community. Awesome. Thank you. You can see Carly, Cece, and myself are all dog lovers because everyone tells us about their dogs, which we adore. Okay, so what was your take on that? 
I also am a dog lover and I have my own who's sleeping somewhere around here, thankfully being quiet. First off, apologies for my pronunciation of any Russian name. I have no idea how to say those properly. So I'm doing the best I can over here. So I think that this initial paragraph sort of giving us the comps, it's functional. It's pretty straightforward. I like when an author tells me why they're picking a certain comp, right? So the magic and adventure elements of A Marvelous Light, epistolary elements of Bridget Collins' The Betrayals. I'm curious how epistolary is going to work in, right? There's not a lot of indication of where epistolary is coming in, in in the pitch, in the copy itself, in part because it just feels like we're with Katya going through these adventures. So who's writing the letters to who? Are there found journals? You know, give me a little bit of a sense of that. If you're going to mention the epistolary element up front, I'm going to want to know how that plays in because it is an unusual thing in a manuscript. I think publishing epistolary is kind of a specific challenge depending on what to what degree we're talking about. The pivot into the title of your own book threw me because it's I thought it was like another comp you were giving me. So a little bit more of a break between the two. I would just say take an extra sentence in that first paragraph. Just give me one more sentence setting up what it is you're doing, what kind of story this is. You know, is it a dark academia story? Is it an adventure story? I'm still a little fuzzy on that from the copy. So take another beat to like give me just a little bit more of a morsel of what we're getting into in the next few paragraphs. This is quite a dense pitch. There's a lot of information here. There's a lot of words here. It's long, it's wordy. Going back to what I was saying before, like really try and condense those sentences, break them up more. Instead of giving four clauses in a row, right? So like battling faculty, dodging her denicals creditors, suppressing It's a lot for me to process and a lot of whiplash. Break them up into short sentences. Be a little choppy. Again, this is copy. Think like movie trailer narration. It's okay to to break it up a little bit. Give in those those periods, they they give me time to process. They give me time to breathe. You're rushing to get so much information across, but sometimes you just need to like slow it up a little bit and you'll get way more across. So this first paragraph, I, again, this is the thing where it really feels like this whole pitch is set up until that last paragraph. Kind of also, you're telling me a lot about what's happening and I don't feel grounded in the story. I think one way you might want to rethink this is starting with this magical explosion. Start with Katya discovering she has magic because what a disruptive thing in her life. What a thing that's upending everything about her and she almost dies in the process. That is your inciting incident. So if you lead with that in terms of like what the first image we're getting out of this is, instead of she's a failed academic, it's like, okay, interesting, but what else, right? So I think giving me a little bit more of that scene, giving me a concrete visual and image, what does magic look like in this world? Where is it coming from? I think that all those things would help sell that to me. And then a stronger sense of what she's doing over the course of this novel, right? She's going after this Russian magician. She's got this guy with her who she's got a crush on, but like they have like a back and forth, you know? So, and then you sort of make this pivot to an ancient magical artifact with untold power. That feels like a different genre of novel than what we've been given up so far, right? So if it really is a quest novel where they're looking for an artifact in this very like Indiana Jones kind of way, then I kind of need a little bit of a different tone there. If that's not what the vibe is, then... I'm wondering what that detail is sort of doing in the pitch. I, I think what's coming across and how I'm talking about this is I'm just like a little confused about what kind of book this is, what the tone of the book is, and what the action of the book is. So I would love for you to take a step back, really consider what do I need to know to pull me into the book. The, the metaphor I always use is it's looking through a keyhole. And I know there's a billion things in that room. Like I know there's a hundred thousand word novel. Once again, 
there's a lot of content here. There's a lot of world building here. So what's the single image that's really going to pull me through? What's the single concept that's going to make me want to open that door and discover all the cool stuff you've put in there? So, you know, take a step back, think about what that central image is. Think about like the one crafted thing you want to give me is, and, and that'll help pull me in. I love that analogy. And for our listeners, I think that, you know, pertains to any genre. It's not just this genre, even though this genre has so much more world building. But, you know, in terms of that, that keyhole analogy, I, I think it's, it's strong throughout all query letters. Carry on. In terms of the bio, I think giving a little bit of connection to why the Russian component is good. I don't necessarily need like the current events is playing into people's interest and people's interest in the Romanov family. I think I sort of see the appeal of like, it's it's a cool Russian themed fantasy, right? There, there's a lot going on there. You know, in your comps, I would try to find something that pulls a little more directly from Russian history in that way. I mean, there's plenty of stuff that sort of has that tone and voice. But overall, I think it works well. I do love mentioning the dogs in a certain way. In another way, I see a lot of like pets mentioned in bios. I tend to just either kind of ignore it or like, yeah, lots of people have pets. I love pets. I love cats. I love dogs. But I'm not sure I always need to know about it in the bio. So that's a stylistic thing. And again, it's like dress for the job you want thing. Like walk into this, like you're walking to a job interview, right? Like walk in being like, I'm a boss. I'm a great writer. Pay attention to me. Think about like, is Jonathan Franzen putting his dog in his bio? Right? You know what? That, that's about. Our listeners put this in because they know Carly sees here myself, love it. Yeah. And I'm sure that they know when they personalize their query letters to other agents, don't put that in unless <laughs> you know the agent damn well loves it. Totally, um, totally. I only okay. bring it up because I see it all the time, right? Like, really? It, it's, I see it very commonly. People are like, I live with two cats. I live with maybe just science fiction people or cat people more than other genres i have no idea yeah it would be cool if you'd be like i live with two talking hamsters from the planet blog <laughs> then then i feel like that's that's relevant okay. that's worth mentioning right yeah that that's yeah. worth mentioning um, that's life needs, experience yeah who needs to write a damn book you can get very rich and famous from the damn talking hamsters okay what was in those opening pages Okay, so the opening pages are really a scene sort of describing Katya's experience at the university, her meeting with the dean and trying to get a job at the university. So she starts with her like talking to a professor, being told the dean wants to see her, introducing the idea that her uncle is dead and was a donor to the university, but is now dead and there are significant debts and she's being pursued for those debts. So you, it gets some of the pressures on and gets you know, Katya's awkward position inside the university, it gets her financial stress into this, all that like is pretty effective in setting up those beats. I think it takes a little bit of a long time to get there. This takes a minute to get across some pretty basic information. I'm not sure that we need the scene of her being told to go see the Dean. We can just start with her talking to the Dean, right? Think about playing with time and voice and perspective in opening pages, right? Like we can get a little bit of flashback. If you want a little bit of like the moments of other students kind of being snide to her, you can sort of have her think about those things as she's talking to the dean or like, you know, there's ways to layer the information in a little bit more. And then I think you could really reduce these pages by half, by almost two thirds to get a lot of that across very quickly. And still, we're going to get the flavor. We're going to get the flavor of the university. We're going to get the flavor of her participation in all of this. There's one very, very specific thing, the italicizing of the German. You know, all the titles like Frau Wagner, Herr Grunwald, like those things are italicized. And I constantly am hitting them like their emphasis. Like 
every time it says Frau Wagner, I'm like, wow, they're being really sarcastic to her. You know what I mean? And then it's like, oh, no, 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 that, that's just people addressing each other. There's a great video from the writer Daniel Jose Older about why we shouldn't italicize foreign language in books. I strongly believe in that. I think it really takes me out of the moment every time. These are characters who live in Vienna. They're speaking German. This is how they talk. Making it italicized is always going to throw me off. So, you know, I think incorporating the German is great. I think it works really well to set the scenes, set the place, just take out the ital. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of really nice prose here. I think the character comes through pretty clearly. I love sort of like the kind of like smarminess of the Dean comes through, but I think you can just do all of this in a lot less word count, a lot less space. And I think being really lean and efficient about it is going to help you a lot here. Thank you. Yeah, just two things there. One, in terms of, you know, the Herr and the Frau, these are words that we know are not English. So we don't need to italicize them. The only time I say put a foreign word in italics is if there's an English equivalent of that word, which means something very different. So if you pronounced it the English way, you will have a complete wrong understanding of what mm. the hell the meaning is. And then if you put that in italics, then the reader understands, oh, okay, this is, you know, a foreign word. But most readers understand Herr and Frau to be German and they'll just run with that. Something else you said there, that's so important is is finding the balance between immersing us in scene and then giving relevant backstory because we always say on the podcast immerse us in scene don't give us backstory in the opening pages but then what we mean is don't have five pages of backstory in the opening pages but it's perfectly fine as Don Juan said to have a line here and there that gives us a bit of contextualized backstory within the scene that you are immersing us in. So it doesn't have to all be just backstory or just scene. There's a way to integrate them and think about them as puzzle pieces. Exactly. And if something is happening in the scene that triggers a person to think about something that happened yesterday or this morning, that feels natural. It feels organic. So long as you aren't then expanding that into a whole bloody scene again, that is all just backstory, right? You can give us contextualized backstory in a line or two of the narrative. Okay, shall we go to the third query letter? Absolutely. Okay. Dear Agent, my debut novel, The Princess and the Rebel, is an 80,000-word action YA story that is a cross between the Selection series and Red Queen. The manuscript is complete at 80,000 words, and this is the first book of a series. 17-year-old Princess Nadia Kalmora is next in line for the throne. It is unwanted position only thrust upon her after her brother's murder by Blight, the leader of a band of rebels. Three years after the murder, Nadia struggles to fit in with her family and fill the new role she's been forced into. Her father won't teach her how to rule, and her mother constantly reminds her she will never be good enough. When a new servant, Louis, starts working at the castle, he opens a new world for Nadia, one full of joy, adventure, and even, she hopes, a chance at love. But when Blight and his rebels continue to threaten her and the life of her family, Nadia avows to avenge her brother's death. With the help of Louis, she escapes the confines of the castle, defying her parents for the first time. On this journey full of twists and turns, the runaway princess must come face to face with beliefs she held about her subjects, especially the lower class citizens. As she continues to learn more and more about the rebellion, the lines of her beliefs start to blur. Will she continue to abide by the biases her family taught her, or will she learn to make her own decisions about the world, even at the risk of losing any chance of being accepted by her parents? I live in the north woods of Wisconsin with my loving husband and our dog and cat. I've been writing stories since I was a little girl and I'm very rarely seen without a book in hand. Thank you very much for your time and consideration. Awesome. Okay, so what's your take on that? Yeah, I think we start really well. It's very clean and efficient debut novel. 
press in the rubble, like get a word count, get a genre. Your comps pretty much immediately position you where you are in the marketplace. One thing to think about with the comps, A, it always helps to mention the author's names, especially since both things you're pulling from are a little bit older. I don't remember when off the top of my head the selection was published and the Red Queen was published, but I remember reading those quite a while ago, right? So it's making your pitch feel a little dated and long enough that I'm like, wait, who wrote the Red Queen? That was, you know, so I, I think getting those in and then think about pulling from something a little bit more contemporary. We've seen an absolute deluge of YA fantasy, princess YA fantasy, especially over the last few years. There's going to be something that's more contemporary that you can pull from that did well, right? So think about how to update your comps a little bit. Okay, when we get into the pitch itself, we get the character of Nadia and we get sort of like the thing with her dead brother and the introduction of the servant. I think the thing that I'm struggling with, it's both kind of a lot and kind of not enough at the same time, right? So there's all these details about, you know, the brother, the the leader of the Banded Rebels, you know, introducing Blight by name here feels a little off to me, given that we get the name of the murderer, but not the name of the brother. It, the emphasis feels a little bit off to me in terms of where we're starting from. I recognize that Blight's going to be a more important character over the course of the story, but this particular beat it just feels a little unbalanced, right? So from her perspective, her brother's murdered by rebels. That feels like the important part. She wants vengeance against the rebels, right? So I think you're starting with all these problems she has and not enough with what her desires are, right? She's struggling to fit in. She's struggling to be a ruler. And then this, this, new, this new servant shows up, opens up this perspective for her. What does that even look like? Again, I want a little scene. I want a little beat here of like what their interaction looks like. What's their connection? You know, right now it just, it feels very random that this guy shows up and suddenly she's like, oh, maybe I could be in love, right? Show me that little flutter of attraction. Show me that little flutter of like uh, opening of romance, especially if this is YA, like what's hot about this guy, right? What's, what's catching the princess's eye that's looking to get her to defy all of her expectations to upend her whole world just because this one dude's hot, right? Like, yeah, l- like, let me know what that is. What's making her thirsty, right? Exactly, exactly. So, you know, I know you're trying to get through a lot of plot and you're trying to set up a lot of things, but books are about emotions. Books are about relationships, right? I want interiority even in a pitch. I want to know how she feels. Show me her anger about the death of her brother. If she's going to go kill a bunch of rebels as a princess, that has to be deep, right? Show me that wound. Show me that anger. Show me that frustration. And then show me the the excitement of possibility with this guy and how that gets her to a point of like, wait, I don't have to sit here where everyone's mean to me. I can go out there and make something happen. So give me those those decision moments rather than telling me what she does. Give me decision moments and give me emotion that she has about those moments. I like the thing about her like starting to empathize with the more oppressed people. I think to some extent that is kind of what I assume that the arc will be of this book. So I'm not sure I need it that much. You know what I mean? That That is so often the way these stories go. The princess goes out in the world and discovers, hey, my sheltered life was a little too sheltered. So that feels expected. It doesn't give me enough. I want details. What is it that the king is doing that is so awful that she didn't realize? Is it economic oppression? Is it brutality? Is it starvation? Like, what's the metaphor here? What's the thing that's going to draw me in and be like, damn, that sounds really bad. And also that feels connected to the ways in which I think our world is broke. So fantasy fiction, science fiction, they are reflections of the world that we live in. I think we think of them sometimes as like purely fantastical and ungrounded. I don't think that's true. I think as with all fiction, there are ways that we 
process and talk about the struggles that we have in our own lives and in the worlds that we live in. And so without me being able to feel that of what questions are being asked about what it is to be oppressed, what are reasons for rebelling, what gets us to take up arms? What gets us to overthrow a king and, and really go out in the streets and protest and resist? Those are real questions that we are struggling with in very real ways in the world. And so how are you reflecting that in your fiction? How are you making that felt with this character? And I think those are questions I have. If you're gonna raise the politics, if you're gonna raise the class consciousness, I want to see that. I want to know it. I want to know you're thoughtful about it. And and I want to if, make that felt in the arcs of these characters, right? In a part, we're only seeing it from this very privileged, privileged position. I don't know what Lewis is like. I don't know what he thinks. Like, you introduce Blight, but like, what's his deal? Why, why is he here, right? Is he right? Is he just in his cause? Or is he a murdering jerk? He killed her brother. Was he right to do that or wrong to do that? And I, I think hinting at those questions, you don't have to answer them, but gesturing at those questions are the things that's going to pull me into this in a way that I'm not quite sucked in at this point. Yeah, the nuance of that was dealt with so brilliantly on The Last of Us. I don't know if you've watched yeah. that, but there's the scene where the sister is wanting to kill the guy who collaborated with Fedra and sold out her uh -huh. brother and got him killed. And so we're, we're in so much with her anger about her brother and what happened and her wanting to get revenge. And then we find out that the person who collaborated and sold out her brother, you know, was just trying his best to save his younger brother, et cetera, et cetera. And so it becomes so morally gray and ambiguous and it's so nuanced. And we're like, I don't know whose side I want to be on here. But they handled that <laughs> and you see like the consequences really, really well. Of ignoring the bigger problems to focus on his vengeance, right? We see very right. immediate consequence unfold in a moment that I yeah. had me standing off my on my couch yelling. You know, I was very excited by this. Yeah, yeah. I'm enjoying the yeah. heck out of the like, show. I was like, you shouldn't have focused on the damn revenge, woman. Get the hell out of there. What was yeah. under that garage? Pay attention to that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and you know that's that's when science fiction and fantasy shines for me. That that's when that's why we do this is you can take these fantastical situations and they become such legible metaphors for the world that we live in. And Last of Us is a great example of this. As each episode is like a little encapsulation or a little vignette of like here's another way society can go wrong, or here's a way sometimes it goes right, as we've seen in a couple episodes here and there. That and, love yeah. story was just incredible. So incredibly oh, just done. brutal. I did not expect yeah. the show to make me cry as much as it has. Like <laughs> yeah. between that and like Henry and Sam, like, God damn, I'm yeah. struggling. Yeah. Okay. So let's go to what was in these opening pages. Okay. So the opening pages is really Nadia grieving at her brother's grave. She can't sleep. She goes out. It seems like almost nightly to stand in front of this grave and reflect on her brother's death. She kind of, she talks to him and then she falls asleep in the graveyard and has to sort of sneak back into the house. I've heard Carly and Cece talk a few times about how difficult it is to start with grief as an emotion. And it's funny, I never really thought about it until they said it. And as soon as they said it, I was like, oh yeah, it is a really flat place to start a story because nothing's happening in a moment of grief. There's no tension here. The bad thing has already happened. You know, for me, tension is about a relationship to another character. And if that character is dead, there's no potential for resolution of that relationship or development of that relationship. It's just a bad thing that happened. It's static by definition. So it's really tough to do that. The only way that I think that works is like if you can put a character in tension with themselves, if they're divided against themselves in some ways of... Uh, their guilt about it, maybe it's very hard to do. So in this, it ends up feeling really flat because it's just, this is just world building. This is just feels like an excuse 
to tell me a bunch of stuff about the kingdom, about the parents, about the brother, about the fact that, you know, he died three years ago and that she's a princess. So I think jumping ahead is going to be really important. I think starting at a point in the story where things are really starting to pop off, you know, I think I say a lot is that the beginning is a terrible place to start a story, right? Because nothing's happening yet. You want to start at the exciting. You want to start at the awesome. You want to start at tension. There's no tension yet. Her getting caught feels like such low stakes. I recognize it's going to make her day annoying, but we start talking about rebels and death. And now it's like, she's going to get in trouble with her dad. So what's the thing that's, that's disruptive, right? Start with Lewis. Start with her dealing with her parents. Start with like them shaming her for this death. And then again, you can play with time. So she can reflect on being at his grave. She can reflect on this conversation that she has with his ghost or his dead body, rather than just hitting us with this scene of her standing there, not really doing anything. It's a very static place to start. I would really encourage you to jump farther down the line, farther ahead into the story, and really hit us with something where things are popping off in a real way. Tiny thing, the way you say both characters' names. So Nadia Astrid Kalmora, Princess of Kalmora. I get that her last name is the name of the kingdom and is the name of the, like, the, the royal family. It's just repeating it. It's very repetitious, though, you know, especially as your first line, like wasting that many words on this character name. Your first six words of your novel are just a name, and I am nothing at that point, right? So really think about where do you start from a stronger point? And also, if it's YA, you want her to be really re relatable. So starting and just be like Nadia was once again standing in the middle of the royal burial grounds. And then like l reveal over the course of that, that she's a princess that gives us the tension, that gives us perspective and character, you know, just telling us up front this royal title kind of slows us down. And then you repeat Kalmora two more times, two paragraphs later in describing Derek's tombstone, right? So I, I very firmly know what the name of this kingdom is by the middle of this page. I'm not sure that that's that important. So things to think about really Try and accelerate it, move farther down the line into the story, and then, you know, think about where you're starting with tension. Think about where action is going to start beginning in this story. Yeah. And what Cece always says is she loves being surprised. So sometimes it's nice, you know, to give us this princess as someone we can relate to. And then a bit later on, we find out she's a princess and that kind of surprises us. That's always nice as well. This is actually the perfect spot for us to just, we have a listener who called in with a very thoughtful take on grief and how we've spoken about it on the podcast. I've been waiting for the right time for the topic to come up to insert their message and we will do so now. And then after that, we're going to the last query letter. Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. Huge fan of the podcast here. Literally have listened to every episode. Uh, I'm calling in today to share my thoughts on a concept I've heard a few times on the podcast, that grief can be difficult to write about because it's not an active emotion. And the reason I wanted to offer my perspective on this is because by night, I put my bum in the chair and write, but by day, I'm a clinically trained interfaith hospice chaplain, providing spiritual and emotional support and education regarding the dying process and grief support to terminally ill patients and their families. And I guess what I wanted to offer is that grief is not an active emotion because it's not an emotion. Grief is a journey our bodies invite us into to process a range of diverse emotions, often simultaneously. And I think the magic in writing happens when we give voice to those immediate and specific emotions our characters are experiencing as a result of their grieving. I hope this is helpful. Again, so grateful for the three of you. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, Thank you so much for the practical writing tips and encouragement you provide on the shit no one tells you about writing. 
Several of my writing group friends recommended I start listening to your podcast, and I have learned so much about the art of querying and how to make your first five pages shine. Although Carly and Cece don't list YA fantasy among their preferred genres, I would love for a guest agent to consider my debut YA fantasy, The Horse Mage, which weaves the themes of rebellion against an unjust empire of a torch against the night with the magical world building of the kinder poison and the sassy horse of the bear and the nightingale. Complete at 95,000 words, The Horse Mage was written for anyone who has ever whispered to a horse and dreamed it might answer back. When 17-year-old horse mage Alex first goes to war for her king, her dreams of honor, duty, and glory crumble amid the blood and chaos of battle. Nothing she can do will keep her sentient horse partner and best friend, Cassian, safe from the ravages of battle. Desperate to save him, Alex uses her telepathic ability to compel Cassian to desert against his will. Fleeing through the woods with the king's troops in swift pursuit, they stumble across an unfamiliar band of warriors, and Alex begs for sanctuary. Safe behind their magical wards, Alex and Cassian discover to their horror that their saviors are rebels dedicated to overthrowing their king. Cassian is furious with Alex for removing his agency and putting them in enemy hands. Now forced to decide between hiding with the dangerous rebels or risking capture by the king's troops, Alex reluctantly agrees for the rebels' horses while plotting their escape. When Cassian sees his chance to run away without her, Alex is left with no option but to beg the rebels for help tracking him down. As they follow Cassian's trail, Alex confronts direct evidence of her king's barbarity and starts to question just which side of the war she should be fighting on. But working to bring down the king Cassian still believes in would put them on opposite sides of the battlefield and sever their relationship forever. My love of horses developed in the womb, thanks mom, and my Sunday morning rides are the highlight of every week. I received an honors degree in creative writing from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I am an assistant organizer for the Arlington Writers Group, North Virginia's largest critique group. I live in Northern Virginia with my husband, two small kids, and a very bad cat, Puck. Thank you for your consideration. Awesome. Okay. So again, quite lengthy. What's your take on that? Yes, it is quite lengthy. One side note, I've been like not saying certain curse words just out of reflex as a podcast. And then I remembered what the name of the podcast is. And I'm like, wait, we that would have been fine. We've got potty mouths on this podcast. <laughs> Okay, so starts really well. Debut YA fantasy, The Horse Mage, Weaves Themes of Rebellion. You repeat the title of your book twice, which I would find a way to like make that a little bit less awkward. I really love this, like has written for anyone who's ever whispered to a horse and dreamed it might answer back. Just tells me exactly who your audience is. You know, there's a strong tradition of horse-themed books and fantasy, as one can imagine. Everything from like The Green Rider to Tomorrow Pierce to all this stuff, right? There's plenty of magical horses. It's a fantastic subgenre. You know, this even plays a little bit into Dragon Riders of Pern in certain ways, right? So the comps work pretty well. I think Torch Against the Night is the second book in the series. So that kind of threw me. I actually had to look it up to be like, wait, which was, what is this one again? You know, in general, you're going to want to go with the biggest, most recognizable thing. And so I would go with the first book. Another way around this is to just mention the author name when you're bringing up a comp title. You know, that'll give me a lot easier, quick perspective. You want to be casting as wide of a net just to make sure that the agent or editor or whoever it is, is going to immediately recognize what your comp is without having to think about it. If I had to go look it up, it's always going to feel smaller to me. It's going to be like, oh, I didn't really know it offhand. So reflexively, it's going to feel smaller, even if it is a huge book like Torch of the Night was. So that's great. Mentioning the Bear and the Nightingale, I think is great. Bear and the Nightingale doesn't really feel YA. It's the only challenge there. There are plenty of YA books, like I mentioned, 
that do deal with sentient horses or people talking to animals. You know, I think Tamora Pierce, it's old school, but is a classic poll that you can make there. For this third comp, you can go older, you can go a little broader just to get that tone across, right? There is something kind of retro feeling about this pitch, not necessarily a bad thing. There's a little bit of an old schoolness, like putting mage in the title, dealing with horses. There's like a very pastoral fantasy vibe to it. So like, I don't think it's necessarily bad to go a little deeper into the pool to hit that nostalgia note for us working in the industry, right? Again, written for anyone who has ever whispered to a horse and dreamed of my answer back. You're you're tapping into adolescent dreams, you know, childhood dreams, right? So hitting nostalgia notes for your audience, really pulling from like 80s, 90s, the generation of agents that you're targeting and sort of what we were reading growing up, sometimes can be a little bit of a hack here. Very rarely am I going to recommend going that deep in the catalog but it might work in this case. Okay, so I have a very silly, small problem, which is I find the term horse mage to be kind of silly, and it pulls me out of the thing. And this is just very fine-grained issue with how we're talking about fantasy. I wanted a term that's more in-world in how they would talk about it in the world. And when I got to your sample pages, they were calling her a speaker. And speaker worked much better for me than horse mage, right? Like, I get that that gets across what she is very quickly. But like, you know, even something like speaker of horses or speaker to horse, you know, something a little bit richer, a little bit more evocative, I think would get me a lot more buy-in to this world, right? Horse mage is just too a thing that I would think as a person who lives in the real world versus what someone in this fantasy world would think and how they would talk about it. So really minor note, but it did kind of throw me out. And again, there's like a little bit of a need to overexplain certain things like sentient horse partner, telepathic ability. You can just say like, nothing she will do will keep her horse partner and best friend Cassian safe. I don't necessarily need to know explicitly that he's sentient because in a minute we're going to get like lots of conflict between them, lots of like tension between them. What might be better instead of saying sentient is actually just give us a little bit of an image of how gleeful he is to be in battle. And this is something I'm pulling from the pages versus her fear for him and her desperation to save him and her forcing him to desert against his will. Great concept. I love this little concept of going into battle. She's so afraid for her beloved horse that she betrays everything he believes in and what she has believed in up until this point. Ending up with the rebels, this tension between Cassian and Alex in the second paragraph. This feels like a lot of text for not a lot of information. I think there's probably a way to scale that back a little bit. Like, I think you can really just be like, they accidentally fall in with a group of rebels who save them from the king's soldiers. This creates all this conflict and tension between Alex and Cassian, right? So I think there's a way to get there a lot quicker in that moment. And then really give me what's kind of happening on the back half of this book, right? This feels like we're a third of the way in. I want to know a little bit more the shape of it. I get the sense that Alex is like following Cassian and starting to realize that the king is not who she thought he was. But it's really a bummer to end on this note of like this girl and her horse being at odds and being at war. It makes the book feel... It doesn't make it feel like the initial promise, which was like this warm, loving relationship between a girl and her horse. It instead feels like two best friends at odds and like are going to kill each other in this like Mercutio and Tybalt way. And I'm not sure that like that's the vibe I want to end on, right? Like I think it's a big question and I think it's good to end on a big question, but it also ends me on a real bummer note for a book that I kind of want to feel like caramely gooey warm about you know what i mean so something to think about like what is the real enemy here and you can even hint at cassian and alex reuniting 
you don't need to really hold that back. I'm assuming they're going to reunite because I don't think your book is going to end on that bummer note. Maybe it does. And that's for book two or something like that. But something to think about in terms of how you're framing this and who your audience is and how you're pitching this to them. So I think that would really make me hesitate right at the end here when I was kind of vibing with this up until this point. It's not necessarily my kind of book, but I can so clearly see the audience for it. There's a real charm to it. And I was kind of surprised by how much I liked this pitch once I got into it. Bio is pretty straightforward. I think sometimes writers mentioning writers groups is not always necessary. I don't know that it adds that much to it. I think it's great work that you do. I'm not running that down. But you know, for me as an agent, I'm looking at what are your professional opportunities. I think it's helpful and it's good context. And it makes me think that you're taking yourself seriously as a writer, which is important. But I don't know, you could cut it or not. For our listeners, just remember that we do have our comps segment where you can phone in, give a synopsis of your story, give us an understanding of tone and genre, and our bookseller helps you to come up with newer, more recognizable comps. Okay, so what was in those opening pages? So the opening pages start with Alex, the main character, trying to beat some kind of speed record. It's like she and Cassian racing against the clock, trying to achieve this really goal, and then gets interrupted by one of the other speakers, one of the other people in her her group, insisting that her commander needs to talk to her and like really completely derails months of training. You know, this is her one opportunity to set this record and then has to go talk to the commander. And it's a great scene. I mean, we get her relationship with Cassian. We get so much of Cassian like refusing to stop, being so eager to do this thing and furious that he's being derailed and kept from his goal. And we get her own anger, but also her responsibility. Like ultimately she's the one who has to, you know, he's kind of like this id and she's kind of like this super ego, right? In terms of someone who's like, feels a responsibility while Cassian is just like all power, all go, you know? And it's such a great dynamic. It's really fun. It kind of gives Cassian a little bit of a darker tone in a way that I think is really interesting. And you're starting to set up all these complex, right? You're, you're, you're thwarting your hero right out of the gate, which I think is always a great move. I feel, I feel so sympathetic to how unjust this is. I'm like, no, nah, she was going to get it. She was going to win. She was going to set the record. I can't believe you, you jerk stopped her from doing that. I was like, my girl was going to do it, you know? Um, and <laughs> I think it's such a smart move to set that vibe. And I think it really, really worked for me. Then it's a way to like set that up so that then it's like, okay, what's so important? What's, what's so critical that the captain has to talk to her right now? And he knew she was trying to do this. Everybody knew, right? And he knew how important it was to her. But he, and also like, it tells me something about him, what his priorities are, that he's like, these are games and I don't care about them. Whatever you kids do amongst yourselves, that's training. That's all preparation for the real thing. We're doing the real thing now. We're going to war. It's a great setup. It puts me in the stakes of the story. It puts me in Alex's brain. It puts me in Cassian's brain. It tells me who the captain is. And it just sets up this whole like immediate tension between her goals and the military goals. Like her, why she's a writer, why she's a speaker versus why the military wants her to be a speaker. And I think that setting up that tension immediately is super important and is going to carry us through, I think, getting into the battle, understanding her motivations for splitting and understanding Cassian's motivations for being really upset by that, right? I can see the seeds of the story you've pitched to me in these opening pages. My main thing is get the tone of this, get the vibe of this, make sure that's in the pitch. I don't feel that in the pitch right now, right? There's things about the pitch I really like, but like this energy that's here, I was very surprised to go from that pitch to something this like 
collected and, and assured in terms of the writing style. There's such confidence here. There's such authorial sort of control and authority being communicated and just like real character intention that I was struggling to get from the pitch. So think about how do you communicate the energy of this opening scene into the pitch itself. And then that's just going to get me to scroll down and read your sample pages that much quicker. Amazing. Amazing. Don Ron, thank you so much for your time. This has been invaluable. All right, let's go to today's guest. Hey, it's Cece, and I have exciting news. My webinars on writing emotion, writing tension, writing interiority, and writing a memoir are all available for purchase on my website. Head over to cecilialira.com and click on webinars. That's C-E-C-I-L-I-A-L-Y-R-A dot com. After checking out, you'll be able to watch the webinar you bought as many times as you'd like for a full year. And yes, the PDF of the slides are included. I hope you enjoy. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they've been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology. So it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're gonna get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. 
calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi everyone, we have a repeat guest today, which is pretty damn awesome. It's hard enough publishing one book to see people going on to publish second and third is always amazing in this difficult industry. So it's my pleasure to welcome back Kristen Bird, who has a master's in literature and teaches high school English in Houston, Texas. She lives with her husband, three daughters, and their rescue lab. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's so good to be back. Yeah, and the book we're talking about today is I Love It When You Lie. We will link to our bookshop.org affiliate page so that you can find it there. Now, something that I'm wanting to chat to Kristen about today is character and how you should choose your characters. Because here's the thing that I get from listeners all the time is I have an idea that came to me. This really compelling plot came to me and that's what I want to write about. And plot comes first, character comes second. And then we have this amazing session in our deep dive workshop series with Karen Dion, the author of The Marsh King's Daughter. And she speaks about how many of her previous novels were purely plot-based and that her breakout novel really, really focused on character and starting with character because here's the thing. Readers fall in love with character. They connect with character. That's why they keep turning pages. They don't fall in love with plot. They stay for the plot, but straight out the gate, what they want is a character who they love. Now, Kristen's book, could you just give us a bit of an overview of the plot so that our listeners can understand why this is such a brilliant book to talk about plot with? Sure. It's set in the deep south, so in North Alabama, in the Appalachian foothills, and it's about three sisters, and each of them have a problematic man in their lives. So when they come home for their beloved grandmother's funeral with those problematic men, they decide that perhaps by the end of the weekend, by the end of her funeral, one of those men should be in the grave with their grandmother. <laughs> Yeah, as you do, man. Family get-togethers are tough. <laughs> but here's the thing. So when you got this idea, I'm assuming that that premise is what came to you first. I'm assuming you didn't just think of one of these women and go, oh, I like her. What kind of plot can I fit her into? How did that process look for you? So the beginning of this novel actually started with an image and I just had the image of three sisters with their arms entwined around each other, standing around a fresh grave. And so I knew from there that these women had to be strong and fierce because they had something to do with putting whoever was in there into the ground. So really, it didn't start, I guess that is a little bit of plot, but it wasn't much plot to start with. It really was just, okay, what is the inciting incident going to be? And then... 
I started with one of the sisters' voices, and then I almost kind of stacked them from there because I have four different perspectives in my novel. It's the three sisters, and then it's the sister-in-law who is not from around there and who is very much an outsider in a lot of ways. And she was actually the voice that I added last. And when my mom was reading through it, she's one of my alpha readers, reads it before anyone else is allowed to, she kept saying, I need more of this voice. I need more of this voice. And so it was almost like building blocks that I was putting on top of one another. Yeah. And I absolutely would have guessed that. Had you said to me, which character came last, I would have told you that because this is her perspective is scaffolding, right? It's to help with structure. And that is amazing when you can get a character's perspective that really helps you set up structure and the pacing of how a story unfolds and who can plant curiosity seeds that keeps you turning pages, then that's freaking amazing. So can you tell us a bit about her perspective in the story, why you needed it? Yes. So she is in the sheriff's office after the events of the week have unfolded and she is giving her account and we can decide whether or not to trust her account, (laughs) but her account to the sheriff about the events leading up to the grandmother's funeral, basically. And then shortly in the aftermath, I'm able then to have two different timelines going on at the same time, even though they're just a week apart, like you said, it helps scaffold the novel. Right. And the great thing about her is that she is a definite outsider. The three sisters, they've got a brother as well. They've got inside jokes. They've grown up together during very difficult times. They're very clicky and close-knit. And she's this the sister-in-law. She's external. And she's got a lot of bones to pick with them. She's pissed off about a lot of things. They've made her feel like an outsider. So she comes in with this axe to grind and then you go, oh, is she reliable or is she an unreliable narrator? Yeah, she was a lot of fun to write because I felt like I could play around with her voice a little bit. And she was able to give commentary on some of those, like you said, those insider jokes and even just the culture of the South which was fun for me because I grew up there, but moved to California when I was in fifth grade and then would travel back and forth. And now I live in Houston, Texas, which is pretty intercontinental in a lot of ways. There's a lot of people from all over here. So it was just kind of fun to say like, okay, as an insider, what would my perspective be? As an outsider, what would it be? Yeah. And I know you said you got the premise, the snapshot of the three sisters around the grave, but something that I want our listeners to really take away with here is intentionality. Every time you add a new POV character, you are making your job that much harder because you are giving yourself way fewer words in which the reader can connect with that character. You have to set up their character arc. You have to have an inciting incident for them. And it is just really harder. So speak to why after you started writing, you couldn't go, okay, no, wait, three sisters is too much. I'm going to have two sisters. Why did it have to be three in terms of the plot? So each character, like you said, has to have their own motivator, their own fears, their own kind of social dynamics that are happening. And the way that I tend to write is very much like a tapestry woven together. So it doesn't feel very natural for me to only have 
two voices or even one voice that's really challenging for me actually whereas a lot of people I think find that a lot more natural I think it might be maybe because of my journalism background we were taught to write really concisely and quickly and to get to know whoever the subject is in as few words as possible and I needed it to feel like it could be several different men who could be in the ground. (laughs) So I needed all of those women. There's basically four different men who could basically end up being the victim that weekend. And so in order to kind of subvert that typical mystery plot where when it opens, you know who's dead, typically, in order to subvert that, I needed you to have a lot of voices coming in at one time and making you think, oh, wait, it could be this person's significant other or it could be their brother or it could be any myriad of directions it could go so I feel like actually making so many characters which again feels natural to me allowed me to subvert the mystery genre in a little bit of a way yeah having those different characters really helped the plot because we've got all these red herrings because we're meeting each of these women we're seeing which men in their lives are problematic and why they're problematic. And then we get to pick which one we hope is going to end up in the damn grave, (laughs) which is always fun. But also it keeps the reader constantly guessing because the sister-in-law character is talking in vague terms. Someone was in that grave. And so the whole book, we're like, who the hell was it? Why did it happen? How do we get there? Right? So for our listeners, you need to be so intentional with that. It needs to be, I am adding this character for X, Y, and Z reason. If I take this character out, a whole lot of the story is either not going to make sense or the pacing is going to be off or I just don't have enough red herrings. So for example, I'm working now on a closed room murder mystery with magical people in which someone dies and it's a hell of a lot of characters And my husband said to me, why are you torturing yourself with this? Because (laughs) this is the hardest book I'm having to write in terms of who fits in where. And I said, you need a lot of different red herrings. It needs to be any of these people could be the suspect, could have been the murderer. And why did they do it? And that's why I'm having to juggle this. All right. So now let's go to your specific advice in terms of letting characters lead rather than making them puppets that you manipulate through the obstacle course of a plot. What is your advice to our listeners on how they can really authentically do that, even though they've just come up with a premise? Because here's the thing for our listeners. Kristen saw those three sisters around the grave, but those three sisters could literally have been anybody. They could have been anybody, and yet she decided on their individual personalities for this book for a reason. So how do we go from this big, big big-ass premise to really narrowing it down and saying, these are the characters that have to be telling the story? Yeah, I feel like I almost have to interview my characters in a way in order to get to know them. And that's something I actually teach my students when we're unpacking a character to analyze in my English classroom as well. I say, go ahead and write down questions and then answer them as if the character would answer them. One notebook that helped me do that is a notebook by Donald Moss, and it's called Writing the Breakout Novel. It's also, I believe, just a nonfiction book that you can pick up and read. But I did the workbook and I found it really helpful. He does great things. Like he says, okay, what is the primary motivator for your character? What is the opposite of that? Write a scene with the opposite of that. And so he's trying to help you create tension in your characters. I also find it really useful to use some kind of uh, personality 
indicator to help me figure out who my characters are. So my husband is a certified Enneagram coach. It's a personality test, kind of like Myers Briggs or something like that. And so I've learned a lot just from listening to him and then reading some of the articles that he sent my way. So that helps me a lot to think, okay, this is going to be the primary go-to fear that this character would have. This would be what they're most motivated by in life. When they're in an unhealthy place, this is how they'll act. And it helps me kind of stitch together the framework of the character. And then I can fill in the little nuances and details there. For Tara, which is my main character, she's got a little problem with stealing money from her husband's church. (laughs) You know, as one does. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, of course. We all have our little problems, right? Yeah. And so I stitched together, you know, these little details of she wanted to at one point be an accountant and she really loved math when she was younger and she dropped out of college after one semester, but we're not really quite sure why something went terribly wrong. Is that related to what's happening this weekend? And I was just you're able to take all of those little details that are specific to that character and interweave them with me knowing that her biggest uh, fe- her biggest emotion is fear, right? And that the way she's going to respond to that is going to be really defensive of herself or really protective of those around her. And so being able to use the Enneagram to help me figure out kind of how she would navigate helped her lead her chapters rather than me just forcing her into a box basically right and also you have to look at her motivator for why she steals I mean for some people it may just be a compulsion they just steal for whatever psychological reason because it's a compulsion but she uses that money to help her sisters right yes yes and so she's also the kind of person who you want to like her right? She has good reasons for doing what she's doing, even if you think what she's doing is ultimately wrong. Yeah. And so being able to give her those multidimensional layers was really important to me. Yeah. And again, what what Kristen just said is so important because you want the reader to like her. So if she's just someone who is stealing from a church, because let's be honest, she's stealing (laughs) from a church, which most of us would frown upon. We're like, oh, that's not cool. But when you see that she's doing it in a way to help other people, et cetera, et cetera. And you kind of look at the toxicity of what's happening in the church that she's stealing from. Then you start to do this moral kind of math where you weighing up, you're like, well, it's, is it that bad, et cetera, et cetera. So at no point are you going, oh no, she's a terrible person. I don't want to read anything more about her. Right. I want to have the reader feel empathy, even if they don't agree with the decisions that are made. Right. And is this something, Kristen, that you do before you even begin writing? Or do you write a first draft and then get to a point where you're like, I don't know why my character would do this. Let me go do one of these exercises. How does that look for you? I probably write about 30,000 words. And then I feel like I know the basics of the character. But I don't feel like I have those, like I said, those nuances, those details, that layering. And so I almost look at it like, I've kind of given those character bones and now I've got to go and do the tendons and the muscles and the epidermis, <laughs> a little gross, but <laughs> I kind of look at it that way. And so after I get to about that 30,000 word mark, I'll often sketch out drawings, very bad drawings, because I'm not an artist of my characters, and then just kind of bubble out around them what their lives are like, what kind of 
connections they have to other characters in the book. I'll see at that point too, if I can condense any of my characters, because I have such a large cast that I have these four main women, but then all of these spouses and friends and children around them. So I look and I say, okay, could I combine these two into one character? Could I get rid of this character entirely? What are they adding to the scene? Because I don't want my reader to get lost in the multitude of characters. Yeah. And sometimes that's as simple as going, okay, there needs to be a next door neighbor character and there needs to be a character who's a teacher. How about I make them the same person? Yes. So it's still someone next door and it's still a teacher, but instead of the reader trying to come to grips with two different characters, it's one character who we see, you know, playing two roles pretty much. Okay. Now I know there's some listeners now whose eyes have glazed over and who've gone, oh my God, you need me to do personality tests. Oh no. Right. Okay. So for those people who are not into the psychology and into the personality test, let's talk about basing characters on people, you know, obviously loosely basing them. What's your take on that? Yes. I love to loosely base characters on people. I know these characters are me and my sisters, basically. (laughs) We also have a little brother in the novel, The Brother's the Oldest. He has not married yet. He's much younger than I am. Uh, But I do sometimes wonder, will she feel like an outsider, you know, even if we don't want her to feel that way when she comes along someday. Um, And so I had my siblings and the bond that we have in mind when I was actually writing these characters. And so even though... Let's take June, for example. In the first chapter, June steals a baby from a hospital. (laughs) Okay, that's it's pretty right out there. That's the first paragraph of her section is that that night she didn't come to work as a postpartum nurse expecting to steal a baby, but that's how it ended. So that is based on my middle sister. And of course, she would never do something like that. And she actually has never been in a position like June where she struggled with infertility to that degree. But... In the back of my mind, because I know my middle sister so well, I was thinking, okay, if she was pushed to the brink (laughs) and she was given this specific set of circumstances, would she possibly consider XYZ? And that's how I was able to kind of let, like I said, June lead me where she wanted to go with this chapter was thinking, how would this person that I know and love and who I would feel a lot of empathy for in any situation, how might they react? Yeah, that's always hugely helpful. Okay, let's talk about the setting as a tool for developing character. Yes, so this is set in the Appalachian foothills, like I said, in the Deep South. And so growing up in the 80s in the Deep South, it came with specific expectations, especially for young women. And it was important that on Easter Sunday, you wear your little hat with the bow and you wear your white gloves and you wear your frilly dress and you act a certain way. And so I grew up in this environment that was just very traditional and conservative and religious in a lot of ways. And so I used that kind of environment and then said, okay, when these women grew up in that environment, what might they look like 30 years later? Would they have rebelled against this? Would they have adhered to these norms? And those who did adhere to them, how would they interact with those who rebelled against them? So I was really able to take something I knew very well, which was growing up in this setting, and then use it to help inform the background of my characters and then how they would behave today. That's a great way to look at it. Because if we think about ourselves as human beings, if we were born somewhere else, perhaps to different parents, perhaps in different socioeconomic 
circumstances, etc., it would hugely shape who we are. We like to think of ourselves as these fully formed people who that's how it just happened, but we are like clay and we get molded in our lives every step of the way, depending on which high school we go to, depending on who our friends were there, depending on what happened with our parents, how happy our childhood was. Of course, genetically, that comes into play, who we are as human beings. So setting really does inform character, and yet it's something that you don't see people talking about a lot. Right. And I had one of my sisters, the oldest one, just go away for a semester, and then she came back home. I had the second sister go away farther away and go through all four years of college. And then the third sister actually went up to New York and was getting her PhD. So I thought, well, that would definitely inform them as well. And even the way that they spoke. So my oldest character, my oldest sister character, she has more of the colloquial Southernisms (laughs) that we know and love and hear um, on TV shows and movies a lot of times. So they have varying degrees also of like voiciness, that kind of Southern voiciness. Yeah. And depending on, you know, how much of a vacuum your characters lived in, because again, that informs it. If somebody was born in the same house, went to high school in that area, studied in that area, never moved further than down the road from that house and lived there their whole life, of course, their thinking is going to be very different than had they moved across the country to a very different university, et cetera, et cetera. So all of that, you know, shapes character and it's important to to consider. Okay, let's talk as well about how interactions between character will inform a story because it's not just how each character is on their own, it's how they interact with each other because there's actions and there's reactions and there's repercussions. Right. And like I said, when I'm writing, I'm thinking of it as a tapestry. And so by the end, I want it to all come together and look like a full image. But in each chapter, you just get a string of that tapestry. And that string will then merge with someone else's chapters. And so for Tara, June, and Clementine, they actually all don't even get to the same place until probably about page 75 or so of the novel. And so you're seeing them more individuated in their own home environments. And then all of a sudden they're in their family of origin, which I think causes them to react quite differently than they would as kind of their grown up selves. Me and my sisters and brother get together. We kind of fall back into those roles and dynamics a little bit. And so I was able to play around with that and show them on their own, being their own people with their own lives or partners or whatever. And then once they get back together, who is kind of the ringleader? Who is going to be the one who's the most obnoxious? Who's going to be the one who's the baby of the family? And I made quite a big age difference between the oldest and the youngest, just like in my family, there's 14 years between me and my brother. And so I wanted to play around with that too, because you're really raised by different people (laughs) when you're that far apart. And so in my book, um, the oldest characters actually had their parents and then they died tragically when Tara was 12 years old. And so I was able to say, okay, well, the baby of the family who was only a few months old at the time, she would have been raised basically by Tara and by the grandmother. And so she had a completely different childhood and a completely different set of trauma and losses and heartaches than the oldest child would have had, but they still are very bonded together. Yeah. And that's 
that's another really good point because you could be in the family, you could be the baby of the family. And so when you get together with your siblings, you might become the bratty one or the spoiled one. But when you're in your own home environment, you are not the baby. You're the mother, you're the wife, etc. And so in that environment, you're stepping up, making decisions. But when you get together with your siblings, you're like, oh God, okay, this one's the bossy <laughs> one. This one's just gonna, that nobody in the family is gonna take me seriously anyway, because I'm the baby. So I may as well just revert back to those roles. Right. Yeah. Playing around with the family of origin dynamics was really fun for me. And something else to consider for our listeners when you are looking at developing character is a character's misbelief. That's from Lisa Cron's Story Genius. What is the thing that the character has always wrongly believed that drives so much of who they are and what they do throughout the story. And then later they realize that this was a misbelief. It isn't actually true. So they're unlovable. They shouldn't accept help from other people, etc. That definitely plays in to a character's emotions and behavior as well. Yeah. And I was able to do that in this novel, I think with that undercurrent of religion, because in the deep South, you're going to be asked if you go to church, <laughs> if you don't. <laughs> One of my friends, a good friend of mine who's a teaching friend, she's an atheist, and she moved down here to a suburb of Houston, and she said her next-door neighbors were just inviting her left and right to church. you know. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, there's going to be that element here. What do they believe about themselves, about God, about themselves in relation to God and then to a community around them. And so that was really interesting to play around with too, was the expectation with it was that they would be good little quiet Christian women, but were they going to adhere to that expectation or were they going to rebel against it? <laughs> well, Kristen, we're at the end of our time. As always, it is so enlightening chatting with you. I love the insights that you bring to your work. And for our listeners, you know, the takeaway from this is always intentionality. You could have the best plot, the best premise, but if your readers are not going to connect with those characters, if they're not going to see them damaged, struggling, vulnerable in ways that they are going to get on board with them and want to cheer for them, it doesn't matter how great your premise is, you know, that's, you have to give them characters that they're going to cheer for. And so be intentional with the characters that you choose. Look at all of these things to say, why am I making this character X as opposed to character Y? Any other advice you have, Kristen? I just think along with that is be intentional about creating empathy towards your characters. Even if they're an unlikable character, which I think is completely fine to write, you want there to be an understanding of why they are the way they are and for that to be a kind of justification for the reader to be able to get on board and to travel with this character over the next 300, 400 pages, they need to at least have some insight and understanding into their psyche. Yeah. And that's why we read. We read right. to live so many lives that we won't get to live. So yes. yeah. We get to we get to experience it through fiction. All right, Kristen, thank you so, so much. And we hope to have you back next time. Thanks so much for having me. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? 
Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Great news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. 
The handle is at CCLira Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.